so long, goodbye. Your name, Marlo? No, my name is Sidney uh, Jenkins. Come on, let's go inside, Here, Marlo. We want to talk to you. Oh, is this where I'm supposed to say, what is all this about? And he says, uh, shut up, I asked the questions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it happens every day. Right profile. Sit down. Sit down. What the hell are you doing here? That's right. I'm getting ready to sing Swan. Swanee, how I love you, how I love you. When some passerby invites your eye to come her way. There's going to be a lot of people looking for me as a result of my lovely wife. If it was a murderer, he murdered his wife. That's a lie. I know he didn't kill and, her. He couldn't kill her. It's a minor crime. A minor crime, a misdemeanor to kill your wife. The major crime is he stole my money. Your friend stole my money, and the penalty for that is capital punishment. Even as she smiles a quick hello, you let her go. I like your face, too. Could you find my husband for me, please, Mr. Marlow? Ow! If you have any trouble, I'll back you up. I have fresh evidence now for you to reopen the Terry Lennox case. You ever think about suicide, Marlboro? Me? I don't believe in it. Welcome to the Movie Geeks United 45th anniversary celebration of Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Released on March 7th, 1973, The Long Goodbye is one of that decade's definitive films. Like most of Altman's work, it stretches the boundaries of genre convention and makes them relevant to contemporary concerns. In this case, Altman was working with well-established tropes, Los Angeles, Detective Noir, Philip Marlowe, Raymond Chandler, and all that that entails. The result is a respectful homage and a radical departure, from the casting of Elliot Gould in the lead role to the playful use of the same recurring theme across a variety of different genres, to the refusal to offer a typical Hollywood resolution. The Long Goodbye is Altman at his most ironic. On this episode, we've recruited two exceptional guests to help us peel back the layers of Altman's masterpiece, author Michael Connolly and film critic Tony Macklin. First up, best-selling crime author Michael Connolly. With over 74 million books sold, Mr. Connolly is a leading figure in the world of crime fiction storytelling. In addition to his work in novels, Mr. Connolly is no stranger to screens both big and small, his hit books The Lincoln Lawyer and Bloodwork were both adapted for film, and his ongoing book series centering on the adventures of L.A. detective Harry Bosch formed the basis of the addictive Amazon series Bosch, for which Mr. Connolly also serves as executive producer. All of this staggering success might not have been possible had it not been for The Long Goodbye. His first viewing of the film as a college student inspired him to take up crime writing as a profession. So you have been uh, a major cheerleader for this movie and the novel on which it's based for many years, and I'd like to know where that personal connection to this material started for you. Yeah, it goes way back. I mean, it goes to the origins of why I do what I do, why I'm a writer. I know the movie came out in 73. I didn't see it then. But in September of 1974, I went to uh, college, uh, my freshman year of college at the University of Florida. So I can't pinpoint it, but sometime during that year, 
September 74 to May 75. Um, I was a pretty religious um, goer to the Monday night dollar movie at the student union, and I would go by myself all the time because, like most freshman college kids, I was having trouble adjusting. I was on my own and so forth. And so I saw it um, at one of those Monday night movies. And back then, the University of Florida had a fledgling uh, film school. And so on Monday nights, they would show a film, and then a film professor or a student or assistant professor would critique it afterwards and lead a discussion about it. So I stayed for this discussion, and a lot of the discussion centered on how it differed so much from the book, which was considered a classic private eye novel and why would you change it and all that kind of stuff. And that's a debate that follows this movie for 45 years. Um, But I was interested in it. So, you know, the next day or the day after, I went to a bookstore and bought the book, The Long Goodbye, and read the book. And I loved the book. I can't say I loved one better than the other. I loved them both for different reasons. But the book led me to the rest of the Raymond Chandler books, and there's not a lot. There's like five others. Um, and I read through all those. Um, I stopped going to school, my classes, and I read these books like nonstop. I binged them, even though that wasn't a word back then. And then I binged them again. And when I kind of came out of this deep, um, Raymond Chandler tunnel, I said to myself, I want to do this. And at that time I was, uh, an engineering major. And then I switched to, uh, journalism and, um, creative writing and so i can really kind of trace the path i've been on for as long as this movie's been around to that movie sorry for the long wow now that's that's amazing yeah i mean movies movies and literature they really can change lives and you are the shining example of that yeah i mean i had had an experience in a couple years before where i was a kind of a semi-witness to a crime. It was someone got shot during a what, what would later be termed a carjacking. And I didn't see that part. I saw a guy running, and I saw him hide a gun. And I, you know, became a little sleuth myself. And I, I was in a car, and he was running. And this is where I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I followed him from a distance till I saw him go into a bar. And then I doubled back, and there was police cars all over the place. I knew something had happened, so I flagged down cops, took them to the gum, took them to the bar. The guy wasn't in the bar anymore, but I ended up spending a night in a um, police station with detectives, you know, questioning me, and they were bringing in suspects, and I was looking at lineups, and I was there for hours. I was basically there till dawn. What I saw happened around midnight while I was driving home from a dishwasher job. Um, I was 16. Wow. And so that evening had made me very interested in detectives because, um, you know, I, was, I felt disappointed because I said the guy went in there and they took out a lot of people that matched his description in this bar. But they didn't have the guy, and the detective thought I was afraid to ID him, and that wasn't the case. And so it kind of let, uh, finished on a bad note where they were disappointed in me and I couldn't convince them they didn't have the right guy. And that just something about that experience suddenly made me interested in crime and cops and so forth and detectives. And I saw I was reading, I was reading and watching movies in this uh, genre, if you will. And so then, so I was kind of primed. I was set up for when I saw this movie, 
And, of course, I'd never been to Los Angeles, but something about the view of Los Angeles and, and the tone of that film, it, it all kind of came together for me, led me to the books, and led me to what I've been doing ever since. I'm like you, I uh, imagine, uh, in that I I have a very romanticized uh, a view of L.A., even even the, the seedy uh, aspects of the city. I mean, there's there's something so alluring about Los Angeles for me. Uh, and I'm sure, I mean, that's a big part of what I love about the work that you do, the, the LA-centric nature of it. What makes LA so, uh, so well-tailored towards kind of the detective noir genre? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, it's, it's many things, so it's hard to put your finger on everything, but I never foot, set foot in L.A. till I was 30 years old, and I came for a job interview at the L.A. Times. And um, I got the job, and I moved out here, so I was kind of a latecomer to the city. But on the orientation of my job, um, my job was to cover crime and police. My um, editor said to me, um, uh, L.A. is a shady uh, – I'm sorry, he said, L.A. is a sunny place for shady people. And that's what your job is going to be covering. And I just, that description, you know, I, I've never been able to top that description, just kind of handed to me offhanded um, by an, a newspaper editor. Um, and it, it just is a kind of place that has all kinds of beauty. You can you know, keep your eyes wide open at, at the stunning things you see here. You got oceans, you got mountains, you got deserts. Um, but it's still a place that in many areas you got to, kind of casually at least look over your shoulder um it has this kind of edge to it and i think that comes from being a place that most people have come from somewhere else to mm -hmm. try to um fix their lives or you know reach their dreams all that kind of stuff i mean i'm an example of that i grew up in south florida i was had, had a great job at a newspaper but i was at night trying to write novels and it wasn't working and so I decided to shake my life up at age 30, and I moved to Los Angeles. So I was just like all these people who come there chasing the, you know, the brass ring. And um, not a lot, you know, it's a small percentage of people that actually reach that ring. And so you really have a sense of the haves and the have-nots in this um, town. And, yeah. you know, I think that leads to the the creative part um, of of um it's it's good grist for the mill it's it's where some good um drama can take place and uh so i think that might be one of the one of many reasons why this place has that allure do you still uh when you travel around i, I mean the la is so spread out and there's so many different distinctive communities there but do you still see evidence of chandler's la when you when you look around yeah, yeah, it's it's what's marvelous about his work is that it does for the most part um stand the test of time. I mean there's some stuff and some attitudes in his books, especially towards women and minorities that doesn't obviously hold up. But his descriptions of the place and the thing that we're trying to talk about that that thing, that almost indescribable thing that makes it a place of great opportunity at, and at the same time personal danger and i don't mean like someone hitting you in the back of the head i mean you can become self-corrupt here i think and mm. um and he 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 um he captures that 
And, you know, the, the example I always say is um, he had wrote a book called The Little Sister, and there's a chapter 11 in it is just, it has nothing to do with plot. It's about the protagonist, um, Marlo, the same guy in The Long Goodbye, um, being frustrated with a case and taking a drive around the city. And um, and I read it all the time. I read it before I write my own books. It's kind of like a inspirational message because that chapter is a kind of a roundabout. The track he takes is actually still available. It's like the roads. In fact, one's become a freeway, but in the book it's just a road. But you can drive that, and it's and it, and his descriptions hold up because he goes beyond the facade of stores and clubs and things like that. He gets gets to what's going on behind them, and um, and tapping into that um, hidden darkness and so forth. And it's just a beautiful um, chapter that you know when it's seventy some years later and it still matters and it still is on on um, point. You know that's that's art, um, and yeah. uh, so that's why it's kind of like the thing that um, I aspire to and read before I uh, start writing. Many places in the movie um, are still around. I mean, I rented that apartment. I don't, I don't know if I've ever if you've ever heard that, but um, Marlo's apartment in the movie, I had that um, for about five years. It was like a writing office for me. Um, did and, did it still yeah. have the elevator? Yeah, yeah, and uh, wow. the um, the apartment where um, the yoga sisters operate, that's all different. That was renovated, and they don't have that porch there anymore, um, so that's different, but the um, Marlowe's apartment was um, almost the same, and, and, and it's it's kind of been handed over to a procession of... Um, writers who are in, were inspired the same way as me. It's almost like um, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind when, when everyone is heading towards that mountain and they don't know why. Um, <laughs> different writers have rented that place over the years. Some of them um, have turned out to be pretty big big successes. I'm, I'm trying to remember some of them. I remember when I was leaving it, Shane Black, who's a director and writer here oh, in town, wow. has done some... He came to look at it. I don't know if he ever rented it, but he was a friend of a friend, and they came by to look at it because he was the same had the same sense about that movie. And if you look at his movies like um, The Good Guys and stuff like that, very much influenced by um, um, Altman's Long Goodbye. Um, sure, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, yeah, is yeah, a great example like, of it. But you you wrote The Lincoln Lawyer there, didn't you? I wrote parts of uh, several books there. I wrote, like, Echo Park, uh, the Harry Bosch book I wrote, actually opens um, in, in the, at, at the, uh, it's called the High Tower, um, in the garage that I was given. Um, and then I moved the manager's office to the apartment I was in, the, the Marlowe apartment. So yeah, I've I've used it in some books and, that were written while there, and a large part of the Lincoln Lawyer was written there. Uh, the downside of it was, um, it's funny, when you see movies and it looks like the old cars are so big, but I guess they weren't because you got one garage that was so small, so thin, that, you know, I, I forget what kind of car I had, but I could barely open the doors to get out, so it was really just a storage place, and then there was almost no parking around, so it was a real 
difficult. This is I had it before the age of Uber. Um, if the, if they had Uber back then, I probably wouldn't have even had a car in L.A. But um, that was a problem that there was, you know, literally zero parking unless you rode a motorcycle. You could fit in the garage. And then um, the apartment itself had a window shaker in the bedroom. It was a one-bedroom apartment, but the rest of the place was not air-conditioned because it had that curving wall windows that all opened, and they were fantastic, um, you know, nine months of the year. But three months of the year, the place was so hot, it was almost unlivable. So I I suffered through it because of the romantic connection to it, and, and I think it did inspire me. And I love the uh, elevator you had to take up to get to it. But ultimately, after yeah. uh, I think I had it four years, um, I uh, I got um, some sweeter digs for writing. Right. Yeah. You know, I you know certainly that <clears throat> screenwriting, in many respects, is a different animal than 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 novel writing. Uh, so when you read the uh, the, the book from the long goodbye. What kind of lessons did you did you take from how Lee Brackett adapted that work? I don't think I was mature enough to be making those kind of comparisons. I have over time, you know, and I've read uh, Lee Brackett's screenplay and so forth. Um, but you know, it's in, on, it, you, you become accustomed to what you start with, is the way I believe. So, so there's a lot of screenwriters who come out of college and they write screenplays and then when they want to write a novel they have a hard time doing that transition and and vice versa i always had a hard time since i started with novels um when it was when i got jobs or or just on my own wanted to write screenplays you kind of get used to what um you know how to do and the big difference to me is and and i think they did a great job in the movie but the big difference is the interior thought you know, when I write these Harry Bosch novels, you're seeing the world through his eyes. You know what he's thinking and and so forth. And in screenplays, you can't do that. So that's the challenge I've had working for the last four or five years on um, a Bosch TV show is taking this character that I know how he thinks and I know what he thinks and then writing scripts where you can't use that. You know, it's only what he says and what he does. And I think one of the intoxicatingly addictive things about Philip Marlowe is the way he views the world and what he thinks and um, you know and most of that is directed towards the city that is so beautiful and has everything going for it but it can't get it right that that is imbued in all the novels and it's not something anyone could ever say uh, you know that detective could never say I wish this city could get it right you know you'd lose everybody <laughs> And and so it's very hard to make that kind of tra- transition of a major character's outlook on the world, and uh, you know I just certain little things that the sardonic humor, um, even down to like scratching his um, uh, matches on the wall by his bed, is um, says something about the way this guy looks at the world, and um, it's just. You know, it, it came together. I thought it was very accurate portrayal of an update. You know, obviously, twenty or thirty years later, of um, of that character. Yeah, and and what's most? Uh, I mean, first of all, I'm a huge uh, Altman uh, fanatic, and I I do love the way that he worked in 
very established uh, genres uh, that had a um, that had a, a very long-standing kind of kind of structure and build to them, and he he worked to see how much he could stretch within that framework, and at the same time. I know that when this movie came out, a lot of critics said, you know, he doesn't respect the traditions of, of Marlowe and, and this uh, this whole genre. Uh, I I did not find that he belittled it. I found that he had great affection for that genre. And uh, in, in terms of the theme of the movie, that comes out because Marlowe works by a moral code. And what makes the movie so interesting is he's placed in a world in 1970s Los Angeles where that morality is in decay, and he can't really find his footing in that. I mean, do you, do you find that appealing as well about it? Yeah, I mean, the man out of time thing is is very intriguing. Um, and also, you know, I was like 18 going on 19 when I saw this. It just hit me at the right time, like his... His, as you say, his code, <clears throat> his trying to understand people that um, he finds hard to understand. Um, all that stuff just seemed to be pretty powerful to me. I think I was at the right age, you know, to really latch on to it. Um, yeah. And, you know, and again, like, I I studied the film, I read about it, I actually did a... Um, if your listeners go to YouTube, I did this hour-long interview with um, Elliot Gould once that was pretty interesting, only about the movie, not about his career, just this one movie. And um, so, so it's something I, I, you know, it's like a hobby. And so it's hard for me to know when what I knew when I knew it. But you know, mm-hmm. in analyst analyzing it, you know, you you definitely see that idea of the man out of time. You know, from his car, the way he. Uh, always puts on his tie, the, that formal nature of that, you know, things that just didn't, didn't work. And, and the things that, um, uh, now I'm forgetting his name, the guy who kills him. I mean, the guy he kills, uh, what's his name again? Jim Bouton. It's weird that they're even friends in the film because he seems to belittle Marlowe's steadfast code and, um, adherence to, uh, times that appear to have gone past, at least in Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's one of the things, uh, doesn't the book go into more detail about uh, how they befriended one another? Is that one of the things that they streamlined for the movie? Yeah, they had like a whole, you know, World War II connection and um, met often in bars and so a couple of recipes for how to make gimlets and all these type of things. Um, so, so it was more of a... Uh, that's probably one thing that was shortchanged as, as things get in, in film is more of a deeper relationship and more of a um, deeper um, betrayal, I think, in the, um, in the books, in the book. Yeah. Well, but in the movie, I mean, it, 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 uh, it, it does kind of make itself obvious that this is a man who doesn't really keep company with many friends. I mean, he's very solitary, his friends are his is his cat, and and he has this one of the choices of the movie is especially the beginning this ongoing monologue <laughs> of him talking to himself. He lives a very 
solitary existence in terms of close connections with people. Yeah, I mean, all that is true, and I think that, you know, I'm not, I love the movie. I, I always say that that and Chinatown are my two favorite movies, and I couldn't pick one over the other. Um, mm. But um, <clears throat> but I think that is, now that I'm, I guess you could call me a seasoned storyteller, uh, what I if I turned in the story like the movie story, I would probably think this myself, but I know the editor would say his loyalty to this guy is not supported by what we right. know about him because he's a loner. Like, how could this guy get so close to him that he wouldn't be suspicious that he would drive him to Mexico without a question? All those things don't add up in the movie. In the book, they do because he you got more pages, you got more words and so forth, and, and, and the history of their relationship is there. And it's kind of like a, a foxhole like mentality. If you've been to a war with someone, and I don't mean side by side, but if you've had those experiences, I think it connects you in a way, and that's that's missing from the movie. So yeah. that that to me, and that all takes place in you know first 15 minutes when he agrees to take this guy, and then he doesn't say anything to the cops. It's all wonderful stuff, you know, especially when he uh, is arrested and so forth. But it does have that question, like. We've already seen that your best friend is your cat, and they basically, you know, the, in the in the um, construction of the screenplay, they replace their the history of of their of Terry Lennox. I keep forgetting his name. The uh, Marla Lennox friendship, they replace it with the cat, and and so I think it does leave that that hole. And you know, I'm not telling you anything that I've just thought of myself or anything because I've had debates. I'm, I'm well known within the world that I, I live, the genre of crime writing, as being um, a defender of this film. And there's many experts out there who think that they've actually said this film is an abomination to me. So I've had these kind of debates, and, and that's one of their big arguments, that um, there's a big hole there and why um, he would um, go to the lengths he did for the Terry Lennox in the movie. Well, I know another uh, point that stuck in a lot of people's craw when this came out was the casting of Elliot Gould, who, you know, it's obvious that he stands in sharp contrast against somebody like a Humphrey Bogart or Robert Mitchum or what have you. But what what uh, elements of that character do you think Elliot Gould uh, brought out that was unique to him? Um. I don't know. The, the one thing I always say about that is that I had never read any of the books or seen the Bogart movie. Um, this was this was my first immersion to Raymond Chandler's world, and so from the start, I thought this guy was perfect. This guy was L.A. Um, you know, and I've I've seen all those others, but once once you kind of like subscribe to the uh, Robert Altman uh, long goodbye, you can't really. Um, See one, see one else, anybody else. So it's like it's sacrilege to say this, but I just think he was way better at it than um, uh, uh, Gold was way, way better at it than than Humphrey Bogart, you know. And I've said that before, and it, you know, I get shouted down like, how could you say that? Um, but it, I think it has something to do with wh- wh- who brought you to the party or whatever. And I came in with Elliot Gould, so I just I always thought he was great. Um, and it comes back to some of the things we've already talked about. There, there, and this is out of the book, so um, there's a very 
sardonic, cynical side, kind of a hopeful cynicism, if you will. I know that's a contradiction, but that's what I've always gotten in Chandler, I mean, in Marlowe, and um, I think Elliot Gould is just fantastic at it. And when I would watch later, years later, um, Bogart, I, I think he's kind of stiff at it. He's Humphrey Bogart at it. So, I don't right. know, I, um, talking about stuff that will probably get people um, yelling at your podcast and so forth, but that's <laughs> the way I felt. And I just think, you know, as as you said, this was an updating. This was L.A., early 70s, where things, things uh, formalities and, and codes of conduct and so forth were beginning to decay and change. And so it's appropriate um, to have a Marlowe, who kind of looks askance at all this stuff, who doesn't trust the police, who trusts his own instincts. And um, I thought Gould was really great at that. Would you say that you ha- you've had debates over the years with colleagues and friends about this movie? Uh, and I'm sure the ending is a point of contention for a lot of critics yeah. of it. Uh, how, how do you defend the ending? How does, how does it feel right for you? It seemed like the natural progression of the story it seemed it seemed a little harsh but it seemed like at at the point at the end of the film there was not going to be any kind of justice for anybody unless marlowe took it into his own hands and i don't know sitting there watching as an 18 year old i i agreed with it um i liked it then I then probably within two weeks I read the book and it's it's a quite a different ending and then I had that puzzle in my own head like which is better like well when this book came out that might have been appropriate because that was back in that post World War II thing where uh, everything was you know father knows best type of um, world and the 70s were were not the same. You know, I remember that, you know, when I saw this movie, I was waiting to figure out if I was going to get drafted. I was 18. It was the last draft for Vietnam. And, you know, so there was a lot of, um, you know, not knowing what lies ahead for me and for the country and for everybody who was on my floor in in the college dorms. We were all 18. The the last draft was coming up and all that kind of stuff. Um, So I don't know, considering the situation I was in, and um, what happened in this film, I didn't, I didn't object to it. That is the biggest debate that I've encountered. Like, you know, you don't take an author's book and, you know, change it that dramatically at the end. Why do you buy the book if that's what you're going to do? Just tell your own story where the uh, hero kills the bad guy. And I get all that. And, you know, and I was always, uh, you know, a supporter of the film. And then many years later... Many years later, I had a, a movie made in one of my books called Bloodwork, and um, the, uh, it was so dramatically changed at the end in many of the same ways. The uh, the bad guy was changed. They changed the bad guy, and then um, uh, I kind of had that same experience of having a book really uh, go through um, changes on its way to becoming a film. And uh, it didn't change my opinion. Um, I wish I could say, it might be dramatic to say, and then I understood what everyone said about Belonga Bai. It shouldn't have been changed. I don't feel that way. I, I still felt that the choices made in the 1973 Belonga Bai were 1973 choices, and they were the right ones.
Yeah. I don't want to get too highfalutin about it, but I mean, this does speak to character, which is one of your um, specialties. I mean, you've crafted such great, uh, diverse characters over your career. And when I think of that last scene of Long Goodbye and the brief conversation they have when he says to Marlo, You'll never learn. You're a born loser. Yeah, I even lost my cat. At that moment, do you think that Marlowe uh, loses something of himself? I mean, is that what the movie's saying to you? I don't want to get too highfalutin either. I don't know. Um, I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> um, I keep coming at it from the standpoint of what, what my age was when I saw it for the first time and what I thought. Um, to me, I think I was thinking that he had learned a lesson, to just stick with the cat. And then don't reach out to people because they're going to betray you. Um, so to me, it was just uh, on a level, a basic level of betrayal. And then you add the component that if if Marlowe doesn't do something about this, corruption wins, bad guys win. They they have this wonderful pool and this hideaway in Mexico and the money. And um, there's probably a little bit of a component that, that they're laughing at this guy who they got to do their bidding. Um, mm. you know, they call a loser. So it, all that stuff a- added up to, in my mind, to uh, firing the gun. The the supporting characters in the movie, um, the detective works, uh, the detective genre in L.A. in general, as you spoke to earlier, there's such a, a cavalcade of just eccentric, interesting people, and they're represented in this movie, the the one that I like uh, the most is the uh, the gatekeeper that <laughs> that does the impressions of the old movie stars, and and I think he's uh, like a lot of the movie he he is paying homage to those classic Hollywood movies. Uh, I mean, it's still there in the DNA of the movie through characters like that. No, that guy that guy's great. It's it's funny the. Um... I have a um, daughter who's in film school, and so it's been fun to. I think she had to see uh, watch um, Nashville mm. in a class, and you know, so she, she knows I love movies, so she um, reports to me on the stuff she's watching and so forth. And really, she really liked Nashville. So then we had like an Altman Film Festival, and she was home on break, and and I can still remember when um, we were watching Long Goodbye. She thought, as this guy's rolling up to the gate, that um, it would be a good time to get take a break and run into the kitchen to get something. And I said, no, 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 don't leave. This is really good. This guy's great. And I, it is one of the parts I'm most fond with. But it's also sad how he, he gets set up. He, that guy, he did that role so well, you know, and when, when um, the guy follow him, and I think it's Arkin, um, and he does uh, imitation, and the guy doesn't know what he's doing. He just has this little moment of disappointment, like an actor's moment of disappointment that you don't understand my greatness. And that it's such a very L.A. moment. It, yes, it's a kickback or an homage to um, some of the um, noir films and so forth, but to me it's, it was just representative of, of L.A. that everyone has one job, but there's something else. They have that dream going for them. And this guy's obviously mm. he wants to be... Uh, entertainer of some sort 
And so even when his audience of one is going like, what are you doing? It just saddens him, and he and he and it, the look on his face is just so perfect. Um, uh, you know, it's one of the highlights of the film. What can I do for you? I'm following that car. No cars out there. That big sagebrush and a few covered wagons. You friend of my boy Billy? What? Yes, Billy out there on the on the flat lands to die. I'm gonna get him. How was that? How was what? My imitation of Walter Brennan. Walter Brennan? Yeah, he said. Oh. Never mind. Go ahead. What is the pivotal moment in the movie for you? I mean, coming from the point of view of a storyteller, what the most important scene for you in the movie? The component of the writer in this obviously has become more important to me over the years as I become a writer and a novelist and I know some of the stresses and so forth that um, Roger Wade was under in, in, in terms of trying to create. And so I guess over the years, I'll just say it that way, his death um, is always really striking to me, um, and and you know Marlowe in in a brief way. It's funny. This guy, here's this guy who only apparently only has a cat as a best friend, but you know is so loyal to this one guy. He drives him to Mexico even though his face is bleeding and all that stuff. And then in a matter of a couple of visits. He he connects with this other guy, and and he and he develops a loyalty that makes him carry the case and and keep looking for him. Um, and so I think losing him like that, um, and then the the dog running with a cane in its mouth and so forth, it it just has yeah. always um, affected me. I shouldn't say always affected me. It's, it affects me now when I watch it. I can't remember if that was so striking to me when I saw it the first time. That's best-selling author Michael Conley speaking of his admiration for the long goodbye. His latest Harry Bosch novel, titled Dark Sacred Night, will be released in October of this year. Next up, a great friend to the show and one of our favorite critical voices, Mr. Tony Macklin. Tony has been a guest on our program many times, and his knowledge and enthusiasm for Altman's work is clear. He sat across from Altman on several occasions throughout the filmmaker's career. Upon the release of The Long Goodbye, he interviewed the film's screenwriter, Lee Brackett, and cinematographer, Vilmos Zygmunt. You can find both of these interviews on his website at tonymacklin.net. Actually, it's a send-up of the crime of the detective novel. It, it kind of says, okay, you can do anything you want to, just make it personal and, and go with it. He, while he's sending up or satirizing the genre, he has a an affection for in tone and mood and style to presenting the humanity and presenting the creativity of what is going on in their world and he he i think i think the the what what affects you and me is that 
there is affection even to his characters when they're foolish. Uh, there are very few completely evil individuals um, in, his, in his work. I mean, he, he obviously is against the bank and he's against the system and he's against the bureaucracy, but they're kind of faceless. They, they are not human entities. And he is basically a humanist. Now, one problem that I've faced recently is that I, I'm, I'm surprised how much his reputation has faded in the last few years. I, I, as you know, I, I gave this quiz to people at the, my donut shop about 2001, and 11 of, of the 13 hadn't even seen it. And I think if I said Robert Altman, you'd get a blank look. You'd get, who who's he? And even to those of us that are are immediately involved, there's a sense that that we're getting away from him. He's 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 lapsing. He's if not disappear, disappearing, fading. And so when you asked me to be part of this, two things came up. Um, I have always thought that the films, the American films of the '70s were the golden age of American cinema. And in a sense, that's been forgotten. We've moved on, and it's now the Marvel age, or it's it's, a, it's just a different age. And the as I was saying before to you, that my own sense of Altman has been put in the closet or put away or, or forgotten. And when I went back to reconsider Altman and just got back in his spirit and back in his, and, and read my, my interview with, with, with the writer Lee Brackett, who, who did the screenplay for the long by and Vilma Sigmund, it became alive for again. Let's talk about Lee Brackett uh, and your meeting with Lee Brackett. Um, I mean, this is someone who co-wrote the big sleep <laughs> she wrote about a third of it. Uh, she 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 told me that she, that Faulkner met her the first day, and he said, "We'll write alternate chapters." And mm. I write the first. You write the second. Write the. And she never saw him again. She saw him in the morning to just say to, to just say hello. And it they gave it that the director Howard Hawks, and Howard Hawks was more a, a director who used the writing but went farther went wherever it took he would take side trips in his work and and, and go all circuitously and he was a creative spirit so in a sense she wrote a third of it william faulkner wrote a third of it and jules firthman wrote a third of it so it was a combination the fact that 27 years later altman gets her and he he was not the first director Every director before him had had given up. I think Brian Hutton was the last one, and he she had done a script, and he was in London, and he said, "I might do it. We've got to keep the ending that you have. Um, if 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 they do that, I'll I'll do it." So he was doing Images, which is a tremendously underrated Altman film, and probably the most challenging film he ever made. He was in London doing that, and she flew over and met with him every day, and at night she would write, and then the next morning he would, uh, they would 
they would talk about what they were trying to do with the, what they were trying, going to be doing with the long goodbye. So does she feel simpatico with uh, Altman? What no? What, it was it was she she wrote seriously. She said I wrote seriously, and he thought it was a joke. And I mean, she's not dismissive of it because she said she said uh, in, in fact uh, she she. She said Altman was Altman, and when he did his scenes, there were some, there were two scenes that come to mind, uh, that show her seriousness and his not playfulness, but his creativity. One was the one of the ten most indelible scenes in my whole lifetime. The suicide scene when Roger Wade, Sterling Hayden, walks off into the into the water at night, and in the book or in the script, um, he had just gone into a room, shut the door, and shot himself. And um, she she was she said that that was Altman, and it was she loved it. She she just thought it was. Uh, superb. She said, here I have it. Um, It was pure Altman, and it was purely magnificent. It was absolutely beautiful, just superb. And it was him and Vilmos creating this. Wasn't on the page, wasn't on any page. There was a suicide, but he took it another way. And it, it it is astonishing Filmmaking. I mean, it, it really is one of the most compelling. Now, the other scene that wasn't in, there were several scenes that weren't in her screenplay, is when um, Marty Augustine, the, the Mark Rydell, hits the girl with a Coke bottle and smashes her face. Is that a face? Is that a face for a magazine cover? Profile? with a lot of girls but I make love to you right the single most important person in my life next to my family and Pepe that's right Marty jolting ending because you expect 
it to be credible. And at the end, it says, oh, this is just a movie. Enjoy it. Here, I did my thing. Um, right. And I, well, but, but well, there's, that, there's, she that, lo- there's that irony that you're talking about that you that you appreciate so much about Altman because he, uh, he opens and closes the movie with Hooray for Hollywood. And right. and it, and so it opens on I think a bedpost with a Hollywood sign etched into it, and it pans over right. to uh, Marlowe, uh, an absolute slovenly character. <laughs> well, no, that's bed. that's that's diminishing him too much. He's not absolutely. He he is decent, and he he gets the cat tries to, but he's not a slot. Well, he's more I'm vulnerable about, yeah. and. I think slovenly is suggests that he's he's a slob, and I don't think he's a slob. Right. Well, when I say that, I mean he's he's sprawled out on his bed and he's he's yeah he's frazzled. It's and, and yeah. uh, you know it's not it's not the very uh, coutured uh, Bogart. Uh, you know. No, it's not Bogart. <laughs> right. And and then when it ends uh, after you know that very powerful uh, moment when he shoots his friend. Um, and the and the song uh, appears again. It's all it's almost it's one of several pl- playful, as you said, uh, aspects of the movie. And I think it's Altman saying, "There's your there's your Hollywood ending," and and in an ironic way. And I, I and I think that uh, it also fits because this genre of film is so etched in Hollywood history. Uh, but the irony, the and, real irony, is that. There's your Hollywood ending that people will not accept. So it's not really a Hollywood right. ending. It's a send-off of the Hollywood well, ending. Yeah. Send-up yeah, of that's the, the irony. Hollywood ending. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, let, let me talk to you about the, the setting of the film, because obviously it's Los Angeles. It usually is in, right. in, in these kinds of stories. But this is this is almost like the 40s Marlowe dropped into 70s Los Angeles. But he would he would be alienated just just by his decency, in any age. I mean, in in a sense, he was alienated in the fifties as he as he is in in, in seventy three. Um, but the culture around him is, I mean, it's not it's it's not always ugly or not always negative. I mean, the girls who are are doing her, they're they're taking, having uh, an okay, having some smoke and and doing the dance in the nude. It's not. It's almost. It's it's satire, but it's 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 almost satire admiration. He, he's part of Altman sees things critically, and part of them like wants to join in. Oh, Mr. Marlowe. Crazy girls. Mr. Marlowe, are you going by the store? Yeah, I'm going to go pick up a couple of cans of cat food. Could you pick me up some brownie mix? I'd really like to make some brownie I'll get you some brownie mix. Get two boxes. Two boxes. Fudge kind. Fudge kind and regular kind. Mr. Marlowe, you're the nicest neighbor we ever had. Got to be the nicest neighbor. I'm a private eye. It's okay with me. I think he 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 has to be alienated because he's a decent soul because he he has integrity, but he's also vulnerable, and he also trusts other people whom he shouldn't trust. He he's not calculating. He he doesn't have he he isn't as 
as knowing or insightful as the the Bogart Marlowe. And I think that's what some of the purists um, rejected, that he wasn't quite the the cool uh, hero that they that they needed, that they want, wanted, that they expected. But he has, as you have said, he's been he's been transported or he's been transferred to another age, another era, with its values and its lack of values. But his have not changed. But he is he does learn. He does learn. Um, Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and, and he and he has a ma- and he has a mantra, which is, uh, you know, just like when when he sees the girls uh, 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 in the uh, on their uh, patio there, and he sees their behavior, he says, "It's okay with me." I mean, that's a repeated mantra. As long as it doesn't kind of infringe upon me, you sh- you can live your life however you'd like. But then he, he's he's faced with the ugly side of that too. Uh, I mean, not just well. The, how, right? how about the song that? Uh... Um, it don't bother me from Nashville. That that's yeah. almost the same thing. That it don't bother me. Let them let them do what they are doing, and as long as it doesn't bother me. And, and but of course it does. When he's betrayed by by his, right. his the the friend he believes in. I have a theory about the uh, another playful aspect of the film is the fact that he uses the same theme throughout the movie. So it's the it's the song the long goodbye, yes. and Williams composes it in different styles throughout the movie, right. whether it's Muzak or Mexican right. Marachi or right. whatever. So he gets on a, on a roll or, or 
on a streak mm. and he plays with with it and sees where where it will go and i think that 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 that's one of the things that opens up the creativity of others now sterling hayden who is a writer himself a novelist himself and quite a good writer he was also it would seem fairly ta- uh, tormented and guilty about naming seven names in the House on American Activities Committee. Yeah. And never quite got over that. And he was drunk through a lot of the making of uh, The Long Goodbye. And there's he wrote his own dialogue, as Barbara Baxley had in, in Nashville. But, and it's cut, but it also is, I think, the weakness of the film. That, that Altman, because they improv, he sits they sit on chairs at the beach outside of the house and the house incidentally that house is altman's own house in malibu uh he shot those he shot those scenes in there and um they there's a lot of improv improv dialogue a lot of it and it almost it's one of the few times in his films that i ever was aware that it was improv dialogue because it's there's a little bit of of um, contrivance and there's a little bit of a of over over trying to, or, or either trying too hard or not trying hard enough I, that I think yeah. that scene should work and it 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 almost is listless it almost stalls the film out for just just a, a segment. It's hard to imagine a more, uh, at a certain point in his life, a more imposing, uh, virile kind of masculine presence than Sterling Hayden. And in this movie, Robert Altman has Henry Gibson, of all people, slapping him across the face. Roger, I'm not leaving without the money. All right, don't leave! I don't give a shit! Get your ass out of here and let's have a party, huh? Write the check, Roger. What check? Write the check, Roger. What check? Write the check, Roger! Whoa! Hey, come on. Oh. You're talking about Marlowe. You're talking about these typically very uh, uh, alpha male characters. What does the movie say about masculinity, do you think? Oh, I think he has a wonderful time with that. By the way, the Roger character was originally supposed to be played by Dan Blocker, who died. And the, so so Sterling Hayden wasn't his first choice at all. Uh, he replaced him. And at the end of the film, he was really happy with with his performance because there's a, a Hemingway-esque quality <laughs> to it and a strength. But what what he he plays with the idea of masculinity in all of his films and also if you go back through his career how many films did he make that had really great roles for women Um, Julie Christie and McCabe and Mrs. Miller she was as important to that film as uh, uh, Warren Beatty was Uh, images which I love is is the psychology of the character played by Susanna York, and she was terrific in in three women. Um, I mean, it's all three women, on. but also, uh, I mean, who is the who is really the focal character in Nashville? It's it's 
Ronnie Blakely, um, the singer who is not an actress, but he's able to get the humanity from these people. And and um, so if you look at him, I think he really does not not um, he thwarts masculinity sometimes in his, in his film because. Mrs. Miller was a smart one. McCabe was dumb. McCabe was McCabe was foolish, but McCabe was likable, and we had an affection for McCabe, the same way as we do in so so many of these of these different films of these different Altman films. By the way, the other thing the other thing that struck me that I found out, and I knew they were born the same day, but Altman, Robert Altman, and Sam Peckinpah were born a day apart in 1925. And um, Peckinpah was the 21st of February and Altman was the 20th of February. So Altman outlived him for 22 years. Um, That's quite a fact. They were both very important in in the 70s, one to a genre, and, and but they both had a, a humanic quality and a vulnerable and a, a seeking of vulnerability and a anti-establishment system group. Um, both of them shared that, but one one of them lived 22 years more longer than the other one. And Altman only got w- one Oscar. He was nominated as director for five. Only two of his pictures were nominated. And Gossard Park, at the end of his career, or near the end of his career, was one of them. He was 80 years old when he got the honorary Oscar one year before he died in 2006. So he got the Oscar in 2005. So that's what I meant. And on that, and on that stage, he, he uh, confessed that he'd had a heart transplant. Yes, yes. And he and it was much earlier too, which was another shock. I mean, it wasn't two years before; it was a, a while before. He was actually planning in the planning stages of his next movie, which was yes. uh, "Hands on a Hard Body," about a competition of people that have to leave their hands on a big truck in order to win it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and he uh, he was going to shoot uh, in St. Pete, not far from from here where I live. Oh, really? Uh, that would have been incredible to, to drive up and try to catch a glimpse of the band. Um, what, 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 was it a novel or a script, or do you know what the, what the source think, of it I, was? Uh, it, it came from a script that I, I think a female wrote, and he had, he had already cast Billy Bob Thornton and Kathy Bates and a few others. But it, was, it, it sounds like the setup for, for a, 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 an Altman movie. A large cast of, of of colorful characters in a in a confined space. <laughs> yeah. Try try to win this truck. Um, well, he 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 had a he had a literary sense to him uh, as well. Um, he he completely changed Mash and and but um, um, there was some oh E.E. E. Cummings was really the. This may be my favorite of all time, just because it's such it's so daring, and such a failure. And we talked about this: Buffalo Bill and the Indians, and Paul Newman giving probably his most 
his raw, most raw performance in that, that he really showed himself. But The Player is a good one. That was from a novel. And Shortcuts came from the Raymond Carver uh, short stories. So, and and these, these directors who have a literary sense and care about language, I'm, I'm fighting a losing fight trying to stand up for language in films. Um, but so many of the masterly directors of the past had a great sense of... of, of didn't mean that, that, that they didn't prefer image to dialogue, but they had a great sense of, of what words can do, that words do matter. Well, speaking of the words and um, uh, the Philip Marlowe character and the my God, why is it left? Why is it left me? Who who wrote all the Philip Marlowe? Chandler, uh, yeah. <laughs> Raymond Chandler, Raymond Chandler uh, uh, aficionados. I think their main problem with the one of their main problems with the movie is, is the ending. They think it it's a betrayal of the Marlowe character that he yeah yeah tracks down his You're right. And kills but I think they may they may even they may even they probably wouldn't admit this, but they may even be more bothered that Marlowe is not being played by Humphrey Bogart. Right. That he defined yeah. the character for so many of them, so many people. And uh, the ending, yes, of of course, but uh, I I think it was also that 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 uh, they couldn't accept the portrayal of Marlowe as anything other than Bogart. Right. Well, let, let, we'll, we'll tackle Ellie Gould in a second, but why do you think the ending's right for the movie? I don't think it's a question of right or wrong. It's a question of does it work or doesn't it work. Um, I mean, you could have ended it 30,000 different ways, but to me... It, endings of book of, of movies kind of reverberate back through the film, and this ending was set up. Um, it's not just tacked on. It may seem totally out of the blue and and not germane and not really uh, right for the film, but. Bob Altman was an iconoclast, and this is an iconoclastic statement. Uh, it's also, uh, I think, the other thing is that when I told you that there was, that that Lee Brackett saw the work differently than Altman did, she wasn't critical of him. She was just, she just saw it, said she, she saw it differently. That if Altman saw it as a joke, he's got to have a punchline. And the punchline is well delivered, and it, it works for me. But I, I must admit that when I, said, when I first saw it, I think I was disconcerted. Because I, I said, oh, no, that's cute, but it's, it's not what I expect. But, but of course... What I expect, and uh, I mean, Altman said one time, it's not my fail, films that fail, it's the audiences who fail. And uh, <laughs> that's, I, great. that's a great Altman quote. Uh, I, I, I think one, 
has to make has to make the, the leap of faith. <clears throat> there's two ways of looking at it for me. There's there's one that um, that he is, and this is what Michael Conley t- said too that he is standing by his code. That he 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 doesn't want to exist in a world where someone like the person that he thought was his friend uh, is lying in a hammock somewhere in a exotic locale uh, spitting money. Um, and the, the, so it's 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 a reflection of of him setting things right. There's also the possibility that he loses something of himself when he pulls that trigger. Or maybe well, of course, I think I think they're both. I think they're both germane. I think it's absolutely. If there's nobody else going to deliver justice, I have to. But at what cost? Right. It doesn't come without personal cost. And in a sense, that's what life is. If you stand up, if you are principled, um, it costs you. If you if you have principle today and run for public office. And hold to your principle, you're going to lose. Yeah. You have to. No, you are. I mean, you yeah. are. I mean, if you're a whistleblower today, and you know that whistleblowing is, quote, wrong, quote, unquote, it's illegal, and it doesn't, it's unlawful, but your sense of justice transcends your sense of um, propriety um, it is at a personal cost and sometimes a very uh, sometimes people who have have principles it costs them their livelihood or even their life and so I think I think the sense of justice that society isn't going to met out justice, that nature isn't going to met out justice. So I am the last one. I am at the end of the line of the justice line, but there's nobody behind me and there's nobody in front of me. It's a one-person line. Do I act? Yes, damn it, I act. And so then, then, Altman, who has made this shocking Philip Marlowe act, Ends it with a with a friv- frivolous, almost frivolous uh, trip down the, the down the down the pathway to I think lighten it because without that ending, it, it ends with wow, whoa, no, it ends with a shock maybe or maybe yes, 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 that's what had to happen. But I don't think he wanted to end it with people dwelling too much on that unless you're really concerned about justice in this world. Um, Elliot Gould is obviously not the um, uh, well, he's not the obvious forebearer of Bogart, Mitchum, that kind of personality. Uh, So what, what how does he define Marlowe for himself? Do you think? Oh, I think he's perfect. I, I think I think it was just a, ca- a casting coup. Now, the the irony is, of course, <clears throat> he worked first with Altman in Mash, and he and Sutherland 
went to the producers in the studio to try and get Altman fired because they didn't know what was going on. It made no sense to them. And then, then suddenly, here comes a film that 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 works with an audience and is perfect for for its time. By the way, one of the one of the sad ironies is that if you talking about Altman and you mentioned Mash, almost everybody will think of the TV series with with Altman and. Uh, Altman didn't like it at all. Didn't like the the series at all because he thought it was too soft and too commercial and all, all of those things. But so th- he knew what what Gould could do and what he could do with Gould. Um, and I think it was I, 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 now the actor once he finds. Once he's given this 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 pathway, this direction by the director, I think it's pretty easy to to pay play a, a, a vulnerable, flawed man with a sense of easy, decency and justice. I mean, it's not as though he's going to be asked to give great soliloquies or do something that's uh, Awesome. Uh, he's he's just got to just got to get through, and and I think that's the fact that he kind of downplays it, and that Altman gives him the the way to downplay it. Um, really worked well, and they really. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure what I what he uh, what he would say about it today, but I know that uh, he like the quote freedom that Altman gave him, even though it was with direction, with, with, with purpose, there was a sense of I'm creating a character. Let's see where this goes. He said it's, a, it's his favorite character that he's ever played and that he's dying to return to that character before he dies. Well, he, he, he in died. fact bought, he, he bought a follow-up short story for a dollar hoping yeah. that he could make it and he never he never got the opportunity to um, yeah I and mean, one can see that one can see what well, I think he had a whole lot of fun in California split that that film just just is just is brewing with with uh, uh joy and and pleasure and, yeah. and challenge and and experience, and he and and Siegel had a, a great chemistry to it. But uh, it, it's interesting. We talk about the '70s being such a golden age for movies, uh, and in terms of the detective genre, uh, within a year of each other, you, you had two of the all-time great films. Uh, with the long goodbye in Chinatown, I think Chinatown is is is, is a, a masterpiece, and I, yeah. I the, it, it appealed to me. And so it, it was my favorite film to teach because nobody sees the dualities, nobody sees the pair. Everything is twos, everything is paired, and usually one of them is destroyed. Whether they're they're track traffic stoplights on a on a car. And one is out, 
or whether it's her saying, my daughter, my sister, my daughter, my sister, my daughter and my sister. I mean, it's, 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 and, and then I love it when we are able to recognize the personal in the film. This, this was, yeah. but Chinatown was written to end, Robert Town wrote it, and it was supposed to end with them escaping to uh, Mexico. But the director Polanski's wife had just been killed by the Manson family. And so his angst and loss and grieving is palpable in that film, especially at the end. Well, I mean, another, um, which is maybe the most profound uh, uh, example of uh, uh, duality in the film comes from the director himself because here he is, he's living the dream, making a big Hollywood movie. He's being heavily lauded by, by audiences that adore critics that adore him. And, and on the other side, his other foot is heavily steeped in tragedy. Yeah. 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 The, uh, see, uh, to me, uh, to me, I, 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 I can't put them in the same. I mean, I, I guess the long goodbye would be in my top 50, maybe. I don't know, and but this the, the but it's, it's Chinatown would be in my top how... top five. Yes. They're both very human films, but on totally different levels. One is playfully human; the other the other is tragically human. And to me, they're just not they're they're not they're just not <laughs> equitable at all. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, my 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 point of comparison is just the fact that they were they were made and released so close together, and the, and they both involve such heavily established genres. In one, uh, a classic character is placed in a modern context, and the other, a modern context is infused in a in a classic setting. Um, and so I I think there there are neat parallels to examine and see what how they how they did what they did with those how they played with those. Well, the, yeah, but the the '70s were full of films like that, full of films where alienation was the major right. character in the film, alienation, irony, wit, uh, humanity, loss, uh, American dream, American nightmare, the American experience. All of that was in was so. Yeah, the films, the American films of the '70s, the person they were so personal, so many of them, and they were so um, en- engrossing, involving, um, and they were so, they were experimental and creative, and they took chances. Now, here, here, tell me where you put "Long Goodbye" in the films of Altman and Chinatown in the films of. Of uh, well, Polanski. Well, Chinatown is the top for Polanski, and and, and right. for me personally, for me personally, The Long Goodbye is probably number two behind McCabe for me with Altman. I, I just can't get McCabe out of my head. That just sunk in the deepest for me, McCabe. But that I, was also I, uh, that was also shot by uh, by Vilmos. Vilmos yeah. And by the way, those, did, those they did they did flashing on both. They flashed the negative on both. So right. He, he, well, he, he he. There was one comment I'm 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 wanted to to continue that uh, um, we were talking earlier about the scene at night 
that he wanted to shoot with uh, the suicide walking off into the the night sea, and of course the light wasn't wasn't any good. Um, and he, there are a couple of comments that he made to me that I have. I may have to jerk around a little bit, but he said no the critics never gave enough credit to Robert for the visuals in his films. They should say Vilma Sigmund's photography with Altman is gorgeous. And yeah. then there's another, he was talking about, and this was interesting to me, because, I mean, we think of Altman as being creative and idiosyncratic, but more more in a, not not superficial sense, but more in a, a playful sense, a, a almost gimmickly sense uh, sense mm. but he 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 said uh, um about uh, later in the long goodbye he he said to me on every single shot we moved the cami- camera on a dolly left or left to right to create an extra third dimension and i said well for what purpose we decided to create a third dimension or a, on a two dimensional film not only with lighting and composition, but with constantly moving the camera. Since the objects change positions differently in different places, the camera move reveals the right perspective of the objects in space, thus creating the missing third dimension. Now, how many of us are, are aware of that? That uh, yeah, when you know, we think I, about, I, I, I think that's absolutely right <clears throat> because when you think of uh, especially on a photographic level, I mean the, the 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 precision and the intention of of you know the flashing the negative and McCabe, the camera movement in Long Goodbye, it serves a purpose. It's it's and and in the Long Goodbye, I think what that camera movement does in every shot, it it it, uh, it gives a sense of voyeurism. Yes. Uh, yes. For the audience. Yeah. And that's that, that's crucial to the film and the genre. These things deserve to be sustained, like like the appreciation of Altman, and in this in this example, um, long the long good but goodbye. I think without you and Movie Geeks United and and sites and sources like that. The the good will die, and we have to try and keep it alive because it is crucial to our humanity. And creativity is all for some of us. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Special thanks to both Michael Connolly and Tony Macklin for making it possible. You can enjoy the uncut versions of both of these conversations on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash moviegeeksunited. And be sure to check out our website at moviegeeksunited.net for additional episodes of our anniversary series. Thank you for listening. There's a long goodbye And it happens every day when 
some passerby invites your eye to come her way even as she smiles a quick hello you let her go you let the moment fly too late you turn your head you know you've said a long goodbye windy branches sigh variations on a theme down some autumn street two people meet as in a dream running for a plane through the rain if the heart is quicker than the Hello, become 